الحمد لله والصلاه والسلام على رسول الله وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا اشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمد عبده ورسوله السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته welcome everyone to episode 3 of after hours this beautiful podcast that we started and we thank you number one for all of the beautiful comments and engagement and we're excited that you're excited may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you and accept from you um we've got an amazing third episode here uh by the way this is Ammar Shukri of course with my co-host Dr. Umar Suleiman and we're very excited to have one of our seniors and our elders and our teachers Dr. Abdullah Hakim Quick to be joining us today inshallah ta'ala assalamu alaykum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh Sheikh Umar and assalamu alaykum Dr. Abdullah Hakim Quick Alhamdulillah, it's it's beautiful to have Sheikh Abdullah. Uh, Sheikh Abdullah, for those of you who don't know, okay, Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick, I like to call him a living legend. He's a senior um, instructor and historian at Al Maghrib Institute. He is the first American to graduate from Medina University back in 1979. He has a master's and PhD in African history from the University of Toronto. He's the author of many history books and he has traveled. To over 63 countries and he uh, currently resides in Toronto uh, and he leads Islamic history tours in Spain, Morocco and Turkey. He actually just told us that he just got back from Turkey and he is a senior lecturer with the Islamic Institute of, of Toronto. So welcome Sheikh Abdullah, it is always a pleasure to have you. Yes, Alhamdulillah, it is a great uh, privilege and pleasure to be with you on this program. Sheikh Abdullah, right from the get-go, so you you you've traveled to sixty-three countries. The bio that I was actually reading was uh, sixty-one, and you said, you know, uh, that's the only update that you have recently is that you've been to sixty-three countries. Um, what is the importance of international travel to you? Why is it so meaningful, and and why do you keep a running tally of the countries that you visited? Well, for me, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. As an African American. Uh, with roots from different angles. I was questioning my own identity. My grandmother came from Barbados, which is in the West Indies. And on my father's side, uh, his mother was a native uh, American from the Mohawks. And um, we were basically African-Americans. So as a young person, I was questioning my roots. I, I was connected with more than just continental United States. And I used to read National Geographic in those days. This was one of those travel logs. And uh, I always wanted to see the world and go to these places. And um, when I became a Muslim, I prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this ability. And I realized that Allah told us, Siru fil ard, travel in the land and see what was the end of those who came before you. So traveling is part of the sunnah. Traveling is part of our mind expansion so to speak, which I believe today is, is so necessary for all Muslims. You know, subhanAllah, Shaykh Abdullah, I, it's interesting because we talk about the lack of the ability to expand often through just people being bogged down in their computer screens and in their phone screens, right? Like people aren't even getting out of their house. And we've seen the detriment of that, especially on the da'wah, right? On, on mental health and faith and communal life and on the da'wah as well. And what that has meant for just basic notions of brotherhood and sisterhood and, and being relevant and keeping up with the pulse of the community. But for you, I think, subhanAllah, you're not talking about people staying home. You're talking about people leaving the country, right? Not just leaving their, their TV sets or their computer screens or their phone screens, but leaving the actual country and what that has 
of perspective, right? And so my, you know, right off the bat, what is it that that gave you in terms of perspective of how people approach faith, right? Because obviously it's not just being Muslim, but you've seen religions probably that we've never heard of, right? And you've seen the way that American Christianity is versus Christianity probably in other places of the world. Islam is in America versus Islam in, in different parts of the world. So what did you immediately recognize about faith in the international arena? Well, um, I consider myself to be a, a student of knowledge. You are not a great scholar. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed me to be in many different places at the right time. And uh, by seeing different people, by learning the Arabic language, I was in Medina in 1973. And my family came, two of my children were born in Medina. This is the old Medina, when Sukh and Nisa went right up to the, to, to the masjid. And uh, living there and Hujjaj coming through from different parts of the world, we used to put up the, the, the pilgrims on the Hajj in our homes. And uh, learning the, the different um, nationalities and languages and cultures within Islam helped me to understand that Muslims are actually closer to each other than they think. And I used to look at, you know, people, you know, I, you know people would judge other Muslims. So they see that the length of your thobe, or they see how many buttons you have, what kind of collar do you have, you know, what kind of hat do you have on? And they say, that person comes from this country, as though it's like a uniform, like a police uniform, or like, or like a, you know, a fire engine uniform. And then they would see a person walking along with a Nigerian hat, a Moroccan top, uh, Pakistani pants, and Sudani shoes. And, and they say, that's an American. because we took the best of all cultures within the cultures of Islam. And, and, and really, that, that's how we're supposed to look at each other. We are an ummah. Allah made us in nations and tribes, as you know, that we get to know each other. So really, by, by traveling with people, living with them, experiencing things with them, it gives you a type of hikmah, a type of wisdom. And that hikmah, I think, is a, is a quality that is missing in, in many of the dua today. And it is so necessary in order for us to practice our Islam and to call to Islam. Check Sheikh, when you say, um, sorry, but no, when go. you say it's um, it's a hikmah that's that's missing from du'at, like if I could just, if you could just explore that a little bit longer or more, how, how does traveling actually give you wisdom? Like, are there any examples that come to mind? Well, you know, you know, travel when you when you go to another environment and live with the people. And I didn't just travel to conferences. I, I would go to the people themselves. I would eat their food, move around in their society, you know, and 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 understand, you know, their 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 harms, understand their blessings, and and, and this really expands your consciousness. This really helps us to understand that even though there are slight differences in how we look at Islam. We are part of one ummah. And so that ummah consciousness, I think that is so important for us to see that we are all part of one team. It's like a baseball team that has a catcher and a pitcher and infield and outfield. Each person plays an integral role for the success of that team. If the pitcher thinks that he's the whole team, you're finished without the catcher. So everybody plays a role. And, and so by seeing the Ummah and, and the strengths that, that you know, different nations have given to the nation of, our nation of Islam, you know, that, that helps us to appreciate each other. And I think that Muslims 
need to appreciate each other more, look for the positives in each other as opposed to the negatives. What has crept in with hisbiya, and that is organizational fanaticism, is that people look at their organizations as being you know, Islam itself. And um, this is where I go back to the basic usul of dawah. And alhamdulillah, when I was in Medina, um, I entered the College of Dawah, and I was blessed uh, to have Dr. Juma Khawalid, Rahimahullah, who was, you know, the, the head, Rais Qismet Dawah Jamil Asa. He, he was the president of, of, of the Dawah section of Asa University. He was my personal murabbi. And, you know, right back to the usul, you know, that wisdom is, for instance, al-mad'u. Uh, who are you calling? We're calling all people, what, not one particular race. Al-Mad'u Ilayhi. That's how we study, you know, like Mudaf, Mudaf Ilayhi. So yeah. Al-Mad'u Ilayhi. What are you calling to? So we're, we're calling to the Quran and the Sunnah. We're not calling to a certain madhab. We're not calling to a certain Islamic movement. We're not calling to, you know, a certain nation. We are calling to Islam itself. And many times that gets lost. And, and when you travel to the different lands and see the people and see how close we really are, then you recognize that those differences are not Berlin walls separating us. But, but those differences are something which is part of the beauty of Islam, because Allah made us like this, that we would know one another. Shaykh Abdullah, I have to ask you, subhanAllah, and I'm actually going to give you a little bit of a confession, because it, it, and, and we spent a lot of time together, but I never actually told you this. When I first started listening to your cassette tapes, you know, the cassette tapes back in the day, you know, where there were just a few, mashallah, mashaykh and du'at whose cassette tapes were in circulation. And I remember the first time I saw a picture of you. And I remember asking myself, what school of thought does he belong to? Because I couldn't pin you down. That's right. Because your dress was so distinct and unique. It was fly, mashallah. It was really nice. But it was, it was different cultures blended in now i'm from new orleans we have the caribbean influence and you know i'm, I'm sure you probably have some something that ties into new orleans as well Sheikh Abdullah. but okay. subhanallah seeing the international uh dress that you would don and i remember the first time seeing you at a conference and i thought to myself i wonder if Sheikh abdullah just is trying to uh bring in some of the cultures of the ummah or if there's some intent here to not just embrace those cultures but to also push back on this uniforming even of ideology because there was i mean let, let's be real right if you looked at a person they were dressed a certain way you can kind of make these assumptions and sometimes you'd be wrong sometimes you'd be wrong you'd say oh he must be a fill in the blank right That's he right. must be from this school he must be one of one of the people from this because your dress says something about you and we learned from our prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam dressing in the cultures of different people very very early of course in islam you know the abyssinians the people of yemen and different cultures, of course, abiding by, by the rules of modesty. So I have a question for you then. Was it intentional uh, on your part to also sort of break through some of the, the groupism that you may have been seeing early on? Was that something you were intentionally tying your cultural uh, you know, uh, mix into and your ability to engage different cultures with that international exposure that not just Muslims at the time didn't have, but Muslims even now, most people will never have that type of exposure that you have? Well, being a new Muslim coming into Islam without having a Islamic culture in back of me actually took the chains of culture off my back. 
because there, there is no set dress uh, for African-Americans, although we, we were starting to develop a type of, you know, American Islamic dress in the 60s in New York with the Mosque of the Islamic Brotherhood and the Darul Islam. It is sort of a, you know, trend, but, but, but there is no set dress. And so really in the beginning, it was just love. I was in Medina and mixing with all different nations. And, you know, so it was just the love of the different cultures. I, I love to explore cultures, you know, and, and, and if one culture has something good about it, then why not use that? Why get stuck, you know, with the other culture, the Sudan, Sudanese shoes, those leopard skin shoes. La la, talk to him, Chef. That's right, man. It was like our blue suede shoes that we used to have, you know, back in the day. Yeah. You know, and, um, but it's Islamic. You know, that beautiful Moroccan dope. You know, why not wear that beautiful Moroccan dope? Those beautiful uh, Nigerian caps or the Romani, you know, caps, the Swahili caps. You know, why get stuck in one culture? So out of love for the Muslims, you know, I was I was adopting that to relate. Later on, um, when the 2000s, when the 90s came, and then this fan organizational fanaticism came in, you're a Salafi, you're a Sufi, you're a Hanafi, you're a Shafi, I realized that by dressing like this, um, I was, you know, uh, uh, taking away, you know, that ability of people to put me in a corner. So people, when they meet you, they say, Salaam alaikum, brother. Mm -hmm. uh, wh where are you from? SubhanAllah. It's the first thing that people always ask. Where are you from? SubhanAllah. Okay. Once you say, I'm an Egyptian, I'm Indonesian, they say, oh, okay, so he's an Egyptian, he's this, he's that. They put you in a corner. So now when they're dealing with me and they look at me, they say, where are you from? And, you know, they don't know where I'm from. Sometimes I even like to say, Islamistan. You know, I'm from the whole Muslim world, right? Mashallah. You know, and, and that's really how we should look at each other. If we began to look at each other like this, then we will become the most powerful nation on earth, just, just by the strength of our cultures. But you see, that Hizbiyah, that division, that tribalism, it is one of the filthiest things, as the Prophet Sallam described it, you know, that can come to us. And so really, I, I would agree, it's both. It was first out of love, but then secondly, it was intentionally to break down this misunderstanding that people have uh, about culture. Sheikh uh, Abdullah, you mentioned a murabbi that you had at the University of Medina. And we are one of the, I mean, the main focus of this this season's podcast after hours is that over the past 20 years. I know Sheikh Omar has been affected deeply by murabbis that he's had. I think that one of the major shifts in da'wa over the past 20 years has been the lack of terbiyah and the lack of presence of murabbis in the upcoming generation of du'at. So if you could speak to the importance of a murabbi, what did that look like, both of you? as well as where does a young 19-year-old, 18-year-old, 20-year-old actually go about finding one? Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, it is important for us to have examples because in many cases, um, the decisions that we make are not necessarily based on a particular text. Uh, sometimes we have to have the Islamic consciousness to make a type of personal ijtihad in a sense, not a legal ijtihad decision, but personal. We have to decide to do this or to do that. And so when we look at the great um, scholars of Islam, Imam Malik, you know, Rahimahullah, the great scholars, and, you know, we learned that the people uh, learned what they learned from Imam Malik and the great scholars 
what was not just the books, they learn is adept. They learn how he carried himself, how he interrelated uh, with people. And, and for me, um, Sheikh Juma Khawelid Rahimullah, um, he was a he was a Azha scholar. Um, he he was into the Dawah, but he was a kind, humble person. And so, really, you know, I learned from him that we need to be strong, multezim, committed to our faith, but at the same time, open-minded to combine these qualities. We need to be humble, but strong and courageous. So, so to bring together these qualities is really important. And sometimes you can't find that in the book. And so when, when you can see an individual, be around an individual who who has these qualities to a certain extent, nobody's perfect, you know, then we're able to have living Islam. And, and this is so important today, not theoretical Islam, but living Islam. And, and the example of a person, you know, really uh, helps us to get this. And actually, subhanAllah, Sheikh, what you're mentioning here, I think that a lot of times when people say, I need a murabbi, they immediately think of, you know, famous people. Famous imams, famous scholars, right? And like, I'm going to go find this person and I'm going to see if they can take me as a student and mentor me. And obviously, you know, it's it's not just the the, the capacity of, of some of those folks to be able to do so, uh, you know, with, with so many people. It's also that that's a flawed way, I think, of approaching tarbiyah, right? It's a flawed way of trying to find a murabbi. We have murabbis in our communities. Um, right. Sometimes that even subhanAllah, when I went to study overseas, one of the advices that that I uh, received was, was don't try to, you know, just get in the big majalis of ilm, the big, the big circles of knowledge and attend these public lectures of famous scholars. There's room for that. But there are people that have master's degrees from different places that are skilled, deeply skilled, and, you know, muhaddithin that you can go and you can sit with personally and they're kind of undiscovered they don't have large circles but they're really really people you can benefit from and personally i found so much benefit in that advice subhanallah being able to cling to folks that might not have been famous famous of course prior to the social media age in the sense of big public lectures with name recognition but folks who had a lot to offer in terms of personal advice and can give you could give you time as teachers and i think that one of the problems is that many Muslims miss out on their local imams. They miss out on their local teachers. They miss out on some of their local youth mentors and people that, you know, run study circles and that can offer tremendous just, I like how you put it, between not legal ijtihad, personal ijtihad. One of my murabbis is a civil engineer. Mm. And he's one of the most important people I ever had in my life. SubhanAllah. And he gave a lot of amthad, from, you know, parables from civil engineering, but those analogies stuck with me and just seeing him live an honest life and, and bring that Islam into his life in that way was so formative to me beyond just my teachers and, and scholars and things of that sort. And so I think a lot of people miss out on that. And it's probably tied to a bit that asabiya, right? That, that division, you know, subhanAllah, I was, I was thinking as you were speaking about breaking the international trends and the national trends and things of that sort. You know, when, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning, you know, in church. Uh, as Muslims, I would presume you've seen that, 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 that growth and you've seen when there was probably a time where Muslims had to be in the same masjid together before they could afford to break up and form, you know, the, the Palestinian masjid or the Pakistani masjid or the Somali masjid or whatever it may be, where they were forced to all be in one masjid. 
And you probably saw then that division taking place mm -hmm. within the communities, right? B based either on race, nationality, and ideology in the name of comfort, maybe, right? Or some sort of personal squabble that happened that led to that type of division. What did we lose in terms of our own personal benefit? And, you know, can you speak a little bit to that, seeing that that development in your own lifetime? Yes, um, I began my dawah back in 1971. And when I accepted Islam in those days, um, I learned from some of the local imams, especially in New York. I would go from Toronto to New York. And uh, I met some of the local imams, and I was involved in selling incense uh, and oils on the street, giving dawah. So that, that's the street dawah. And so by being involved in that in those days, you learn a type of street sense, which is hikmah, how to deal with people of different looks, different nationalities. And, and so later on, you know, when I studied formally what dawah is and realized that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in Surah An-Nahl, verse 125, Call to the way of your Lord with wisdom, fair preaching, and debate with them in the best way. That was the street sense that I had learned back in 1971. And, and so combining the two, enabled me to, to face some of the challenges that I had. And, you know, when you mentioned this issue of being in the same masjid, by the will of Allah, I was thrust into the, the, the Jami Mosque of Toronto. And that was in 1985. And at that time, Muslims were pouring into the country. And so I was in the masjid. We only had two major centers of worship in Toronto. Just imagine this. Over a thousand people per week in the masjid. And I was thrust into this position as imam. My thing was dawah, but I was thrust in the position as imam. We had all schools of thought. We had all Islamic movements. We had all the nationalities. And, and people had their attention, but somehow they accepted me because I wasn't any of the nationalities. Although the Palestinians th thought I was a Palestinian. Because there is Kuik. Kuik is actually a tribe. It's a Turkish name. And I found out from the Turks just recently there's some flower named Kuik. So, so they thought that, you know, maybe I was a Palestinian. Like they, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't believe that this is actually a new Muslim, an African-American. That's not possible. So how we were able to keep people together was when it was time for Salat, we, we went back to the Sunnah. Sallu kamara'aitumuni usalli. As the Prophet said, pray as you have seen me pray. So, so people learn to respect Amin out loud. They learned to respect how you make tashahud. Um, and then we, we used to have what we called Islam in the world every Sunday. So we would invite a particular nation to bring their food. We talked about their history. We told them, wear your clothes. And so we got people in the Jami Mosque to be acquainted with other Islamic cultures. And it really broke down a lot of barriers to the point where people of different schools of thought we're actually supporting each other, you know, in the way that they would pray or the way that they would look at Islam because they knew that Islam is wide and the Sunnah is wide in itself. And it was later on, once Toronto expanded uh, and people in these different tribes and nationalities found these warehouses and, and literally um, developed their masjids and center. And I had gone away. I was in South Africa for 10 years. When I came back, the city was huge now. You have the western side, the eastern side, and all these masjids. 
So, so the group that used to have a halaqa in the Jami Mosque now had its own center. And this is good to a certain extent because there are a lot of people from those nationalities. But the bad part is when you feel uncomfortable in the house of Allah because you don't speak a certain language or, or, or you pray in a certain way. And, you know, I remember being in um, Barbados. I was in, you know, the West Indies traveling. Because when I say America, I mean the Americas. And that includes Canada, Caribbean, Latin America, South America. You know, and I, I remember, you know, making salat. The imam said, well, a darling, beautiful recitation. I said, Amin out loud. I was the only one in the mosque. So when they finished the prayer, they, they said, where's that shaitan? You know, and they came for me, right? And I said, get Bukhari hadith. And they got, and I showed them that the Sahaba said, Amin out loud, so loud, it shook the masjid. They said, we didn't know this. Our teacher did not teach us this. And so simple appreciation uh, of, of ways of doing things within the Sunnah and different cultural expressions within Islam can go a long way for our nation. I think that's one of the common factors of growing up in the West. And it's one of the beautiful things is that you're, you become forced, as you mentioned, to, to, to expand beyond your madhab, beyond the particular version of your madhab that you follow, because you will come across people who'd practice differently. And so you, it forces you to refer back to the text. But you mentioned, Sheikh, traveling to South Africa for 10 years. So I want to ask you, what took you to South Africa for 10 years? Back in the 90s, um, we had opened up. I, I left being imam after five years because being imam in a Jami mosque is, 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 a, is a terrible test, right? You know, and the administrations become like these Middle Eastern governments, you know, controlling their... <laughs> you know, in the best way, of course. Right. In the Jami mosque, we had a revolution, actually. And we, Come on. It was real Middle Eastern government. That's right. So, so we, we, we broke away. And um, so we formed a, you know, a, a community center and we also had a social service center. It was the first Islamic social service center, probably in North America that was recognized by the government. And um, we were counseling people who were HIV positive in the nineties, Muslims. That is a time when nobody would touch AIDS in the Muslim community. So I was invited to South Africa to a international conference on HIV AIDS because you know it was it was the worst in the world at the time, and the Islamic Medical Association had a conference, and I was uh, invited there with uh, uh, Dr. Abdullah Idris. The two of us we were invited there, and after I you know showed them how we counseled people in HIV positive, you know then they said travel. So I traveled around the country giving lectures, and when I came to Cape Town, Subhanallah, I said this is my home. Cape Town is a unique place. It is not the typical um, Hanafi, Indo-Pakistani Muslim you may know from South Africa. These were Cape Malays from Malaysia wow. who were brought in, this, in the uh, uh, 17th century as slaves. They're Shafi and they're Fiqh. And um, the city, Cape Town, is like the New Orleans of South Africa because they have a carnival. And, you know, people in, in New Orleans tend to be Pretty a little girl. bit... They tend to be a little jive, you know, as we say, you know, they like music and they're happy. They're happy people, right? So Capetonians have this happy way. Trinidadians also have, have a carnival. 
And so Cape Town had this blending, you know, type of thing. But what it did have is that the South African government, according to the uh, the, the Apartheid Separation Act, divided people into different nations, religions. This is apartheid. And so all the Muslims were put in certain areas. So I found an area in Cape Town that had 90% Muslims. The Adhan is called outside. The food is, is, is all halal. There is madrasas. There are top-rate uh, qadis uh, uh, of the Quran. And uh, this is like a mini Islamic state. And so I was um, approached by the Muslim Judicial Council, um, which is the leading ulama body in, the, in, in, in South Africa at the time. And they said apartheid is lifted. So now the section for whites, the section for coloreds, which are mixed African and white or Indian, and the section for the blacks, the Africans. Okay, apartheid is lifted, but our minds have apartheid. And we have to do dawah. But we're afraid to go into the African townships. Right, because we're so-called coloreds, we're afraid. It used to be against the law, and and we're too ashamed to give dawah to the to the white people. So the Sheikh Nazim Rahimahullah, he said, "Can you open up a section for dawah and teach us how to give dawah?" So I came with my family. Alhamdulillah, I fell in love with Cape Town. We went into the African townships, ten thousand shacks, no running water, no electricity. We went to the white areas, especially on the universities. I have no problem talking from white people to, to white people. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, right? So, you know, I don't have any problem like this. I live in Canada, you know, so we showed them that a lot of the uh, problems, the barriers were more psychological when they were actually physical. And you need to have tawakkal, tawakkal Allah and use hikmah, wisdom when you're dealing with people. And so with this, to make a long story short, we started to travel. Alhamdulillah, we formed uh, a national body with Sheikh Ahmed Didat, who was very sick at the time, but I worked with his group, and I knew him personally. And we, we, visited, we visited all the, the sections of South Africa. Then we did what is known as Kafila to Dawa, Dawa Caravan. And we traveled to the different frontline states, Namibia, Botswana, Malawi, Mozambique, Lesotho, Swaziland, Zimbabwe. So we took our caravans to them, where we went not to other Muslims like Tablig Jamaat, we went to the non-Muslims, and, and, and we trained the Muslims in how to give the dawah to people who are not Muslim. And so that was a great breakthrough for me, and it was an amazing experience. And um, I consider uh, South Africa, in a sense, to be like a Western country, in a sense, because the infrastructure is Western infrastructure. Um, and it's directly connected. English is a strong enough language, the second major language. Uh, and so I consider it to be, you know, uh, uh, something connected to the West. And, and I still keep the memories of Cape Town and South Africa with me uh, and travel with them and, 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 and still uh, thank Allah, you know, for that beautiful experience. SubhanAllah, I can't imagine, Sheikh. That's just one experience out of how many experiences you've had. That so many people will never get to get to encounter. May Allah bless you for all those years of travel and all those years of dawah and, and things. Subhanallah, that you know, every time I've sat with you, I've I've learned something new. Uh, you were in uh, you were in Saudi Arabia when the takeover of the Haram happened, right? And that time, so Subhanallah, like that's that's a history that you encountered directly. And I remember sitting in Canada with you and hearing that you know from you and 
coming out of Medina in, in the 1970s, you know, when, when most of us cannot even remember, uh, you know, Islam in the 80s and 90s, you know, in terms of what it looked like nationally, uh, much less internationally. If someone's sitting with you, Sheikh, and saying, you know, look, you the dawah has changed so much. You got a 20, a 20 year old in front of you, right, who wants to do dawah. And, you know, your dawah was going to the fronts of different countries and organizing caravans and face to face and, and employing wisdom and beautiful preaching. You know, dawah now is uh, putting up your phone and recording a, a 30 second uh, selfie, you know, video for, for TikTok or Instagram or Sheikh Hamar's favorite platform, Twitter. You know, if, if you're thinking about, you know, dawah today, what do you tell someone who who just does not? who's unable to perceive the human component of dawah altogether the human component the wisdom that you accrued the human component of dawah altogether should we just not do dawah at all should we avoid the online scene i mean there's a jungle out there online a virtual world it's should a desert we avoid it? <laughs> that's right that's right yes well you know if, if we look again at um the different forms of dawah i go back to my roots you know, and that is the streets. So that 1971 street dawah on, on Young Street, which was considered the longest street in the world, and meeting people of different nationalities, and, and then from there evolving, starting to the, the different technologies that, that, that came into the world, uh, and evolving from using, uh, you know, writing on boards, and, you know, using slides, and then, you know, using PowerPoint, and and, and, and going to different levels. Uh, all of it is part of the technological advancements that people have made. And we should use all of this for the Dawah. I don't think it's right for us to cut out any particular platform, unless of course that platform is totally against Islam, then you know we should use as, as many as we can. But we have to realize that the essence of what we're doing, the call to Islam is an invitation. And it is not an invitation to a particular ideology or a particular personality. It is an invitation to a lifestyle. Islam is a lifestyle, is Tawhidic lifestyle. And so in order to call somebody to a Tawhidic lifestyle, and that means not only the oneness of God in our aqidah, in our belief, but the oneness of God and the risala and the prophethood in the way we talk to each other, the way we interact, the clothing we wear, how we do business, all of these different aspects of Islamic lifestyle make up the dawah. And so you will be surprised to note that what I found in many cases that people who are watching you when you are doing dawah, they're learning more from what you, you do, from the expressions on your face, from how you treat them, as opposed to just how you debate. So, so this is important. We're, we're calling to a lifestyle. And, and another thing that's so important about direct dawah, organic type of dawah, in a sense, is the fact that when you are calling somebody to Islam physically, that has an impact on you yourself. Because if you're, if you're calling to Islam, to certain aspects of Islam, and you don't do that, you're going to question yourself when the day is over. So dawah actually helps the da'iya himself or herself. So, so th that's all part of the organic form of dawah, 
that goes right back to the beginning with the Prophet Sallallahu and his companions, and, and it goes on till today. We are in a, a new age, you know, with the technology. We don't shun the technology. We, we, we should use the technology. Um, I myself, when Facebook first came out, because again, I was evolving, I said, no, I'm not going to do this. It's like taking off your clothes in public. You know, so I, I'm not going to get involved in this. But then I, when I was traveling with Al-Maghrib, then I realized, you know, I, I opened up a page and I realized how many people actually got the information. And then one time I was traveling in Spain, just imagine this now, after my, my Facebook page had expanded, you know, with leaps and bounds. I'm traveling in Spain, you know, with a tour group, and we were in Madrid, the Jami Mosque of Madrid. And I'm walking in a corridor, and this brother came walking in the other direction. I don't know him. And he looked at me and he said, Abdullah Hakim. And I said, who are you? He said, I'm from Argentina. And I saw you on Facebook. I said, subhanAllah, look at the connection. I'm in Madrid talking to somebody from Argentina who I have no connection with. And suddenly a thread like connected us. So, oh, so in that sense, there's a value uh, to this with all the different trials and tests that go along, you know, with, with trying to keep these pages. Uh, but we need to be able to use um, this technology. It's part of the hikmah. It's part of the wisdom to know the different trends that are happening. What is the Islamic response to the trends that are going on? And so this is so important today uh, when we are giving da'wah. Sheikh, I have a, a question to ask actually both of you. But Sheikh Umar, the reason why I said it's a desert is because of the hadith in Ibn Majah, the Prophet says, that whoever lives in the desert, they become harsh. Hmm. And online is a desert. It's a desert. People no longer have human interaction. And so that's why you find the harshness of a Bedouin in people's comments and in the way that people interact. They've lost their civility. They're not True. in the civilization anymore. But Sheikh Abdullah, one of the the one of um, your specialties and something that you spent a lot of time on is specifically African-American history, your research about Muslims coming to America before Columbus. Right. And your book, Deeper Roots. Um, the question that I have for you is what is the importance of a Muslim knowing their history? Why is that important? And not just the history of African-Americans in the United States or North America, you call it the Americas, not just North America, but South America as well. But for example, the Palestinian kid who's watching this or the Senegalese kid who's watching this or the Malay kid who's watching this, how important is it for them to, to learn their own family history, their own cultural history? Well, actually, we I consider this to be an, an integral part of the Islamic personality. And we know that you know, when a person's about to get married or, or interested in getting married, they look for four things, right? So you look for, you know, the beauty, the wealth, you know, the dean, but one of them is nesep, you know, and, and, and that is, you know, your lineage. So, so everybody should know their roots. And history is a very important thing. People say, well, why do you, isn't this tribalism? No, look at the Prophet Sallallahu uh, I believe it was in the Battle of Hunayn, you know, when the Muslims were surrounded and you know, they were, they were, they, they, somebody said, I killed, I killed Muhammad. And, and so then the Prophet stood up and said, Anna ibn Abdul Muttalib. I am the Prophet, no lie. I am the son of Abdul Muttalib. So he identified his tribe. So everybody knew immediately that's him. 
So part of your identity is it is necessary, but is not sufficient. See the difference in the two? It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And particularly in the Western countries, and I found this in South Africa as well, with African-American people, Latinos to a great extent as well, um, native people to a certain extent, our roots have been cut off. Our history has been destroyed or it's been distorted. So, so knowing the history is part of repairing the personality uh, of the individuals in this part of the world. And it also repairs other people you know, who are dealing with us because racism, a lot of racism is ignorance. And, and so when people, I found that, um, it, that it's necessary for the personality. Then in the fields of Dawa, I found as well, when I was calling in the Americas, if we put up a sign and said, uh, Islam, the misunderstood religion, there will be a few people who might attend. But if you say roots, going back to the roots of Africa, the roots of America, the place is crowded. So now I specialized in this. My specialty was actually West African Islamic history. Shekhar's man, Danfodio, the great Mujed did. I had 37 original uh, documents in Arabic, and I brought them back to the University of Toronto. So it was really West African Islamic history. But my passion is deeper roots. Oh. And that is, you know, the, the history of Muslims in the West. And so this, uh, as a means of dawah, I found it was a total difference in inviting people. You know, you can talk to non-Muslims. You can talk to anybody who's open-minded when you start talking history. So, so in other words, history is a tool. History is not an end to itself. And we know that within our concept of Islam, our studies, it's so important. If you want to understand a particular um, ayah, a verse in the Quran, one of the things you look at is asbab and nuzul. What are the reasons why this verse was uh, revealed? That's the history. And, and, and you'll see that in most subjects, you will go back to the history of the subject itself. Never mind Asiratul Nabawiyah, the prophetic biography, which is so important today in understanding living Islam. So really, we're not looking at history in a Western sense as a dry subject that's looking at numbers and dates and, and individuals. We're looking at it as experiences. It's an organic thing. What are the experiences of those who came before us? And that's so important for Muslims today not to fall into the same trap that we've fallen into before. Allah bless you, Sheikh Abdullah. SubhanAllah, so much that you just said there, but I, I want to, SubhanAllah, when we talk about connecting to the past, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he teaches us about history in the Quran, it's always to the extent that it is relevant to us so that we can learn from it. Every historical fact that is given in the Quran is given directly attached to a lesson for the present. And that, I think that's just the profound reality of how you interact with the past. It's not just knowing the past to be fascinated. It's knowing the past to be enlightened and to be more perceptive and to understand how we got here. <laughs> and I think that when we're talking about the present, um, one advice that I would give to people, and, and Sheikh Abdullah, feel free to agree, elaborate, disagree, um, even as we've moved into this digital age and as we have the technological world, you can't understand da'wah properly unless you are involved in your local community, unless you are interacting with people on a day-to-day. -day. You know, when you're speaking to theories and concepts, until you actually interact with people physically, 
you're not going to really be able to understand what is happening in the community at the time. It's it's a different world online and it's a different world on site. And the more that you engage the on site, the more intelligently you will interact online, uh, intelligently, also emotionally intelligently, right? Online. If you know people, if you interact with people, and I think that's true with the Muslim community. I think it's true when we talk about da'wah in terms of interacting with, with other people. Your da'wah is not just, let's go to the streets and let's talk to people about Islam. Da'wah is how you carry yourself in your workplace, how you carry your, yourself in your in, in your school environment, how you carry yourself amongst friends, you know, seeking to invite people to Islam. And you can't invite people to Islam unless you invite them to a conversation. And the best way to invite them to a conversation is to have inviting manners. That's when you're on the airplane. So I always use plane example, Sheikh, because we travel so much, right? Say, can I get your bag for you? Or let me put that up for you. And then how are you? Are you headed home? Right. That's inviting a conversation, which can, inshallah ta'ala, lead to an invitation to the deen as well, to a form of da'wah as well. If anything, just da'wah with your akhlaq, da'wah with your character. It's da'wah in the supermarket. It's da'wah at school. It's not hiding from your identity. And of course, there's room for da'wah in every place and every space. And there are different approaches towards da'wah. And we should embrace those approaches and, uh, you know, uh, make du'a for people that might engage in certain arenas of da'wah that maybe we don't have the unique capabilities to do. But I think that it's important for us to emphasize, especially to people that don't get out and, and in, engage with the community, with their Islam, engage with the community, with their Islam, that that human component is going to inform how you carry yourself with other human beings, either right in front of you or through a screen. And it will make you a better person it will make you a better muslim and it will make you better at calling people to islam as a whole so just don't lose that experience uh and and maybe we can all one day inshallah have a running tally of how many countries we've traveled to uh, you know yeah. uh, in that regard so Sheikh Abdel, if you have anything you you want to elaborate on or agree disagree or you know yes um, what i wanted to say is that in the evolution of dawah what i found especially being in southern africa was that um the dawah in organic sense is going through a change. And because of the calamities and crises in the world today, um, there's an approach to dawah that should be connected with the welfare of the people who we are calling. And we used to travel to different parts of South Africa and Southern Africa. And for instance, we would come into an area and before we went to the dawah center or the masjid, we would talk to the people who live around it. And we would say, what do you think about those people? And they'd say, well, you know, they wear long clothes and somebody stands outside and he's, he's screaming something. You know, we, we don't know what he's saying, but generally they're good people. And, and so then we would talk, then we go to the masjid or the dawah center and talk to the brothers. And what we realize is, is that the first thing we need to do is if we have a center or a community or in our dawah is do a needs assessment. What are the needs of the people in your area? So for instance, they would have HIV, AIDS, you know, education. There would be poverty. You know, they need food. Um, they need uh, tutorials, whatever it is. And so we need to upgrade the standard uh, of the people and we do it for Allah. And, and that is the best form of dawah. You don't even have to debate with anybody. You, 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 you meet the needs of the people you call to the good and forbid evil, and you do it for Allah. I'll give you an example. In, in Georgetown, Guyana, 
there was an enlightened Libyan ambassador, Rahimahullah, who was calling, you know, to the way of Allah. Um, and this is back in the 90s. And so in this particular area of uh, Georgetown, the people were in need of medical centers. They didn't have enough doctors. So, so they bought a, a piece of land with a three-story building. And on the bottom story, they had the doctors would come and a free medical clinic certain days of the week. And so people come in there and, you know, they get their examinations and whatnot. And then at the end, somebody would say, um, uh, why did you do this? And the brother would say, well, um, because I'm a Muslim. And so they say, inevitably, somebody would say, can you tell me about Islam? They say, go to the second floor. And you go to the second floor and then there's pamphlets and information and some people to discuss. And inevitably, someone on the second floor the, the people would say, uh, can I become a Muslim? They say, go to the third floor. And on the third floor are the du'at who will help you make the transition into Islam. And so scores of people came into Islam, no debates, no arguing, bickering, only servicing humanity. But we service humanity in the name of Allah. That is one of the greatest forms of da'wah that we can do today. Without having to debate, or, or get into any uh, ideological confusions, service humanity, call to the good and forbid evil, and we do it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sheikh, um, I have a question on a lifetime of da'wah that you've uh, been fortunate to contribute. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve you and bless you. Amen. Every year around this time, the videos get passed of Sheikh Abdullah Hakim Quick, specifically Halloween. Uh, I wanted to ask is over time, have you felt positions change on anything? Have you felt that you've, um, there are some videos that you kind of grimace and, and look back on and be like, I wish that I didn't have this video or that video? Um, is there anything that, or positions in general that you've changed that you look back on? I think it would be very healthy for us to to learn from our senior mashayikh the ability to kind of just you know reevaluate positions and what have you. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'm probably um, one of the prime examples, you know, of somebody who suffered from um, the evolution of technology, because back in those early days, from back in the '80s, um, I was putting out cassette tapes. Myself, Imam Siraj Wahaj, Dr. Jamal Bedoui. You know, there were a few of us putting out cassettes of my Jumas and, you know, whatever. And then we started putting out videos. Uh, and then over the years, because traveling to different countries, people would film it, it. It goes online. And suddenly everything's online. And so you can get a video of me back in the 80s. You know, fire and brimstone, you know, talking about, you know, different so-called so sensitive topics which now with the evolution of time and all the things going on, the gender politics and, you know, all the different things that have gone on, you know, would be considered a hate preacher and would, would, would be considered, you know, totally out of line. Um, what I say is that there is context and that there's nothing that we can do, you know, you know, to stop cut and paste and people using things against us. We have to have tawakkal Allah. We have to depend upon Allah and hold the line. And, but there's nothing wrong with explaining to people, and that's what I had to do, 
the context of what was being said at a particular time. And if you can explain the context of it and then show the tape, you know, or, or, or a quote from the tape, then the people will understand. And what I tried to say right from the beginning, you know, is that this is not my opinion. This is Islam. This is the Quran and the Sunnah. Okay, so that does not change. Um, how we deal with people may change. That's part of the hikmah and how we're dealing with people. But our basic understanding remains the same. And we have to be strong enough to hold the line, if it is for Allah and his messenger, even if it means that we physically get, had harm and I was physically harassed and you know they tried to cancel me so many times and so many things happened, but I continued on for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, and, and my particular position is that if too much pressure is on you to force you to say something against your principles, then just be quiet. Just don't say anything and mm. do something else. In other words, stay one step ahead of them and, and, and continue to go on. But what we said for Allah with sincerity at the time, um, that is for Allah. And we don't want to lose the blessings you know, that we can get because we have so many faults. We have so many mistakes. We need every blessing that we get. We cannot go back on you know, something you know, that we took. However, we can explain the context. And sometimes I say to some brothers, if you feel weak and shaky, you know, whatever, just don't say anything. Just do something else. Get involved in something else. Right? Go back, just feed people. You don't have to stand on the member if it's getting that heavy. Do another form of calling to the good and forbidding evil. Right? So it's a matter of keeping one, you know, uh, step ahead. But it's not easy. And I make dua for, you know, uh, you know Dr. Umar. You know, people like you, may Allah protect you and preserve you because you're out front, man. I was out front before and I know what it's like. Mm. And that this, that, you know, whatever you say, there's always going to be a troll, you know, who's in back of you, who's going to say negative things. But as long as we, our sincerity is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is the most important thing. Not to please the people, but is to please Allah, you know, whether they <coughs> like it or whether they don't like it. But we, but we do it with the best uh, of character. Allah bless you, Sheikh Abdullah. Zakallah uh, khair for your advice. I think it's really meaningful. <clears throat> now, I can't imagine, subhanAllah, we, you know, think about, uh, they talk about how this generation now will be the first generation that grows up and their entire childhood would have been online, right? Because, you know, people are getting canceled, if you will, and and called out for tweets 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but they were adults at the time. Now you have the 25-year-old, or no, go even younger, right? The 18-year-old that is going to get rejected from a college because they tweeted something that's deemed inflammatory on Palestine when they were 13 years old, right? Mm -hmm. And so obviously you can talk about hikmah and, and wisdom, and it's important. I can't imagine for you having film speaking to a masjid in a third world country and, and, you know, as an imam, when you're giving a khutbah in particular, there's an energy in the masjid you might be trying to speak to, a, a, a group in the masjid. It's not even just the cultural context. Like, I, I'm taking a particular tone because I'm, I've become privy to something in the masjid. I can't imagine 40 years later, khutbahs and talks from these places, subhanAllah, being put online. May Allah bless you. And, and all I can say is we've benefited from you tremendously, Shaykh Abdullah. We have benefited tremendously. 
And uh, personally, subhanAllah, I've benefited tremendously from you. Your wisdom, the the cassette tapes, you know, they were they were a part of my formative years as well. You, Imam Siraj, Dr. Jamal Badawi, Hafilakumullah Jami'an, Allah preserve you all. We we benefited so much from those tapes. Uh, Sheikh, we're at the top of the hour, so I'm gonna ask you uh, some some quick uh, questions, um, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, Trinidadian doubles or New Orleans po' boys? Mm, I don't know what New Orleans po' boys are. My uncle, my uncle, my uncle <laughs> That's good enough, Sheikh. That's countries. good enough. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. Although my uncle was from New Orleans, and I, and I've been there, <laughs> you know. But but I, I never stayed there, you know. You know, but but I'm a doubles man, though. You know? love yeah, doubles. I love doubles too. I'm gonna have to treat you to a po' boy though. But I love doubles right. in Trinidad and Tobago doubles. Mm-hmm. There's something else, alhamdulillah. So gator shoes or Sudanese suede shoes, which ones? Uh... Sudanese shoes are number one. Allahu Akbar. Right. Allah. Allah. I have two. to say, the flyest shoes I ever saw are Sheikh Amar's wedding. <laughs> he wasn't wearing them. It was his uncle. Your <laughs> uncle walked in. I, that was an uncle of yours, right? Who had the white tobe and he had the white, those white Sudani shoes. Yeah. And those were the nicest shoes I've probably ever seen in my life. Mashallah. Mashallah. Who was that, Amar? You don't you don't remember your uncle's shoes? I, I don't remember at all, but I'm sure he was one of my uncles. <laughs> <laughs> sure. That's right. Had a lot of them, alhamdulillah. MashaAllah. for joining us. Hold on, hold on, Sheikh Abdullah. I have, I have two questions real quick, if you don't mind. Yeah. One of the most important that everybody wants to know. You know how people always ask people their top five. You mentioned Sheikh Uthman Danfodio. Who are the top five? As a historian, who are the top five Islamic personalities, dead or alive, you think every Muslim should know? Mm-hmm. Other than the Sahaba, we're not talking about the Prophet and the Sahaba. We're talking about Muslim figures in our illustrious history. Yeah, of course. You know, it's 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 hard to really, um, you know, that there's, there's there's such a broad history that we have. But um, um, Imam Al Ghazali, Rahimahullah, I find him to be, you know, an amazing scholar and personality. You know, the different phases of his life, you know, and what he went through. People don't understand the depths of the wisdom um, that Imam al-Ghazali had, you know, rahimahullah. And um, this was reflected upon, you know, other people as well. Um, there's also an individual who, who's fighting spirit, who, who took a stand. Uh, this is one of the Mamluks, Saif al-Din Qutus, rahimahullah, Saif al-Din. He's the one that really initiated, you know, the Ain Jalut, you know, the, the whole stopping of the Mongols. Which yes. was one of, the, one, one of the key points, you know, in in our history, you know, was uh, Saifedin, you know, Qutus. Also, um, the, uh, uh, the 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 great scholars, you know, coming into um, Al Andalus, uh, Al Andalus, and you know, there is you know the story of Tariq ibn Ziyad, you know, he he is a, he is a really important person, and. Um, the um, um, um it, it slipped slipped my mind now, but but the first Khalifa of the Umayyads, you know, who, who came in into, Palestine? No, in, you know, in, into Al Andalus. Sorry, uh, in Al Andalus, I meant. Um, in Al Andalus, Abdurrahman. Uh, Abdurrahman. Yeah. So yeah. It, yeah. Abdurrahman yeah. Adakhil. Abdurrahman Adakhil, Rahimullah. His life is really, really important because of 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 his balance. You know, his life is a beautiful biography. If they could ever make a movie, they say that some 
you know, Hollywood group wanted to make it and uh, Antonio Banderas, you know, wanted to play Abdurrahman, you know, in, in this movie. Um, yeah. But Abdurrahman's life, you know, is, is a really important life, you know, for us, you know, to study. And then, Amen. of course, you know, Shackleth Man, Danfodio, you know, I'm looking for scholars with balance, you know, those who are able to, you know, have high spirituality, high understanding of fiqh, but they practice what they preach. They actually put it into practice. So th these are these are some of the names that just come offhand in some of our great scholars. We have our top five. Jazakallah khair, Shaykh Abdullah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. The, the second thing um, was just really, you have a very interesting uh, concept with regards to or, um, the word racism itself. It's something that's so prevalent, obviously. It's something that's considered the original sin of America. It's something that is uh, a dreaded word that's used. And you mentioned tribalism in the Muslim community, but you argue that what Muslims do to each other is not racism. Is that correct? Uh, yes, this is a deep discussion, you know, because racism, in a, in a sense, if you look at the triangle of racism, there is race, racism begins with an ideology. It's racist ideas. Okay, and that's, the, and then it goes down to racist expressions. And that's what most people know as racism calling people names. But the third part of the triangle is institutionalized racism. And that is where because of the color of your skin, your nationality, whatever, um, you, you are blocked from upward mobility. You can't get certain jobs. So there's three parts. With, with, with the Muslims, because we don't have state power, you know, here in this part of the world, you can't use institutionalized racism in a, in a, in a general sense, you know, as you would with white supremacy. However, within our masjids, there is a form of discrimination which sometimes borders on racism. And we experience this as African-Americans coming into communities. And for instance, you know, the, the Afro-American man accepts Islam and they say, okay, brother, call the Adhan. So you're the Bilal, right? So call the yeah. Adhan or do security. So that's generally the jobs for most African-Americans. If it's mm -hmm. a sister, go in the kitchen and cook some food. You see, so this is a form of discrimination which in some cases, because of our own Muslim countries, it can actually go into racism. And, and, and so we need to struggle against this um, within our society because we're suffering from this, you know, and it is a filth, you know, which can break apart, you know, our community. So, you know, we, I'm not using ra racism in the general sense, like white supremacy. However, uh, it, you know, the discrimination in our community can be very dangerous and harmful, and sometimes lead to a form of racism itself. I just found it very interesting in in the 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 way that you notice the power of certain words and how loaded they are, and how they come with an entire history packaging. And so when when we just absorb them and just use them uh, in our own community, it might be carrying certain connotations and and, and meanings that that might not actually be the realities there. And so it was just uh, an interesting illustration of the power of words. And I wanted to bring that to account. I feel like it's the same thing when we use the word slavery and Islam and slavery, it's, it's, it's coming with a very, very, very deep history that, or package that doesn't necessarily um, translate when you're talking about the Islamic version or the Islamic manifestation of it. 
in any case, Jazakallah khair for, for clarifying both of those. Yeah, this, this is why it's it's so important in um, understanding our history. Um, I, I have a set of lectures. Um, my website, hakeemquick.com, you know, and then, you know, the YouTube. Um, and I've got a set of lectures called the Black Muslim Experience. So this is a set of lectures that I did. Another one called Western uh, African Sunrise. And there's a third one, um, and that's dealing with um, Shekhar's Mandan Fodio. And, and there's another one called The Empire Strikes Black. And, 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 and that is dealing with the history of East Africa Mashallah. going from ancient times. And so um, I would advise people, especially the Black Muslim experience, you know, download this. You can download it for free. Like download this uh, to go back, you know, into it and understand African Muslims in the early times. You know, in one sentence, we have to realize African Muslims were not weak people in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. We think that, you know, you say, you know, the Habasha, you know, African, Bilal, you think people are all slaves and they're weak. No. The Kaaba was attacked by Ethiopians, by Africans, right? It was yeah. one of the four powerful nations on earth, was Aksum, Al-Habasha. So, so, so black people were not necessarily weak people in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Okay, so, so we have to rearrange our understanding. And slavery was something that was not uh, restricted to Africans. Anybody could be a slave. It was a matter of power. Uh, as has been explained, you know, in many lectures and uh, Dr. Umar's, you know, excellent uh, uh, series on Islam and slavery. So we have to, you know, uh, unpack some of this information and, 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 to, and to revisit uh, our understanding of, of, of our deen and of race. So subhanAllah, as you mentioned that, you said the perception of um, you know, black people in particular in the Sira, uh, and and how we translate contexts across, and we try to portray a certain individual, you know, as, as representing an experience. Uh, what sort of that balance now, as we come into where we are right now, you know, where where people obviously, you know, connect to their cultures, they they connect to their uh, their backgrounds, and you also have you know, a collection of traumas now in the ummah where people, you know, are feeling different pains, different forms of pain, right? So there's the African-American experience, you know, and obviously the unique, the unique experience of Muslims, uh, you know, African-American Muslims and African-Americans in general. And then you've got the Palestinians and then you've got the Uyghurs and then you've got the, you know, the, the uh, Kashmiris and you've got people from, you know, different parts of the world that have experienced certain traumas. What do you say to someone who is, uh, you know, feeling like their trauma and their plight is being downplayed because of their exposure to the international uh, community uh, through the Muslim community. Yes, um, we have to learn to empathize, not just sympathize, but empathy is when you feel the pain of, of the other people. And that isn't, that, that's where understanding of different cultures come in. And, and, and that is where realizing the experiences and learning about the experiences of other Muslims and what they are going through. And really, we have to work on mahabba. That is the love that's in our hearts. We have to love Allah and his messenger, and we have to love the Muslims. Even if somebody's different than you, 
they may have a different movement. But if that person is from Ahlul Qibla, that person is praying to Allah, you know, they are following the Prophet. We have to have love in them for them, even though there's some differences in us. This is not easy. But this is part of the Sunnah that a lot of people you know, don't realize how serious it was when the when, when the, the Muslims had to accept the Quraysh, the people that are killers and torturers, they had to accept them as brothers and sisters. You know, they had to learn to empathize with people because that's where the love of Allah and his messenger, you know, supersede, it rises, rises us above the petty differences on the ground. It's not easy, but the more love we give, inshallah, is the more love we get back from Allah Azza wa Jal. So may Allah put mahabba in our hearts, Amen. put love for all of the Muslims, and, and really help this ummah in this critical time. Abdullah. We, we love you for the sake of Allah and benefited from you and continue to benefit from you. We ask Allah to preserve you, Amen. to keep you going, inshallah ta'ala. And as you have traveled 63 countries and more, inshallah, we ask Allah that your final destination be al-Firdaus al-A'la with our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and that we're able to join you as well. May Allah bless you, Sheikh, and thank you for your time. And uh, Sheikh Ammar, Zakallah Khair as well. Alhamdulillah, we got we got a pro Sudani shoe uh, endorsement that came out of this as well. So, Barakallahu Fikum. Inshallah Ta'ala, we'll see everyone the next episode, Inshallah. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.